Please take your Bibles and turn back with me this afternoon to our first reading where we continue in our series of sermons through the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, and we are in chapter 11, and we will consider the second half of this chapter. Look last Lord's Day at verses 1 to 9, and this afternoon at verses 10 to 16. It begins in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Most of you know well how absolutely indispensable it is to have a a proper and biblical view of the relationship of the Old and New Testament scriptures. This lies behind so much of what we are taught to believe. It lies behind a great deal with regards to what we do in our practice and other things as well. This is very, very important uh, to see the, the points of prominent continuity between the Old and New Testament. There is one God, one Savior, one gospel, one law, one people of God, but also to recognize where there are points of discontinuity. Uh, The passing away of the ceremonial ordinances of worship and other things that were associated with that. The move from Jerusalem to heaven and the taking of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and other benefits that accrue to God's people through uh, Christ's accomplished work and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we recognize and must recognize what the Bible teaches us about continuity and discontinuity and how these things work in the relationship of the Old and New Testament. You'll hear people in our own day speak about being New Testament Christians. Well, we believe that there are Christians, but we would never for a minute believe that there's such a thing as New Testament Christians, as if if that means that Christians are to devote themselves chiefly or exclusively to just the New Testament scriptures. Why? Because the fact is you will never, ever, ever understand the New Testament without a thorough and growing knowledge of the Old Testament. You'll never understand the New Testament. You will You will wade in the shallows all your days because the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament and it presupposes an acquaintance with the Old Testament. And that includes figures and pictures and language, vocabulary, themes, theology, history, all sorts of things which are underneath and at times explicitly alluded to in the New Testament scriptures. So if you don't recognize those things and don't understand the meaning of those things, then you're actually not going to know or understand the meaning of the New Testament at all. And so these things are important. And it's true as well when it comes to matters of prophecy. One um, change, I think, misstep that's taken place, uh, took place in the 20th century was to detach um, prophecy and history. I've made this point before. Detaching prophecy from history, and that has been followed by at times an over-spiritualizing of prophecy, which has resulted in what I call eschatological Gnosticism. Uh, 
in other words, we come to, to, to prophetic texts and we say, well, we don't, we don't really know what this means. It just means kind of generally this kind of broad theme or this picture of the gospel or something like that, not much uh, beyond it. Thankfully, those who adhere to that line don't do so when it comes to things like prophecies of the person of Christ, you know, his being born in Bethlehem, his entering Jerusalem on a donkey, and a whole host of other things. Thankfully, in, that, in those points, history and prophecy are still uh, maintained together. But all of that in build-up to say this. We, we preached recently, not too long ago, through the book of, of Romans prior to our series on Hebrews in the morning. And many of you will have been here for that. You'll remember uh, the time we devoted to Romans chapter 11. And there in Romans chapter 11, the Lord tells us about the future, and he tells us about what's still coming. And he says that that future includes that the Old Testament people of God, Israel, who crucified the Savior and were cut off and made enemies according to the gospel, that they would be grafted back into the church. And that in this event, which comes toward the end of history, we would see something of all Israel being saved, Israel being brought back as life from the dead, and with them the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. All of this remains yet to come. And so we spend a great deal of time in terms of understanding exactly what that means. What I want you to see this afternoon is this. Romans chapter 11 did not drop out of the sky. It didn't come from nowhere. It's not as if this appeared in Romans, the book of Romans, and it's like, this is new. We've never heard this. This is a new twist on things or, or whatever else. It's not true. What Romans 11 teaches us was already taught in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah and so on. And so Romans 11 was actually built upon what had already been predicted and prophesied under the inspired word of God. And we have an example of that here in our text. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 and following lies behind what we have come to understand of Romans chapter 11. And here this, this whole chapter is a depiction of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is set before us, Jesus Christ is set before us in particular as the banner. Christ the banner, that's the title of our sermon this afternoon, Christ the banner. And we'll, we'll see this under three, three points. First of all, the Lord's banner to the Gentiles. So you look at verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. So here we have a repetition, right? The root of Jesse. We noted earlier there shall, verse 1, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And we've seen clearly this is a reference to none other and no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's speaking of David's greater son and his Lord. It's predicting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's being set forth before us in chapter 11 as a king, as one who is suited to, see, to sit upon the eternal throne, which was reflected in, in David's own reign and superseded David's reign with what is far more glorious. He's a king. 
And part of the imagery that's used here is that of an ensign. So you'll note in, in, in this verse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. And then again, we have it in verse 12, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. So children, an ensign is a banner. It is a flag, if you will. The unfurling of a flag, and this would have been uh, a common image uh, in, in older days, especially with regards to war and battle and kingdoms and so on and so forth. We still have it reflected in countries throughout the world where uh, the banner or flag of a country is held, is flown over its capital and things like that. We don't so much carry flags into, into battle, but this would have been um, familiar to, to Old Testament Israel. So for example, when we read about the tribes um, being situated around the tabernacle, right? We've been hearing about that children in, in our study of Hebrews. So the tabernacle's in the middle, and you have three tribes in the north, three tribes on the east, south, and west. There were ensigns that were raised. So each tribe had a flag, if you will. Each tribe had its own banner that was characteristic to its, to its, to its tribe. So this is something uh, familiar to them. Here we have this depiction of Christ and the gospel being, being set forth as a banner. And it's the Lord's banner in verse 10 to the Gentiles. Now you'll recognize immediately that everything that's being said here and everything that is being said in the verses that follow are in reference to the coming reign of Jesus Christ. So it's speaking about the one who rises, uh, who shall be a root of Jesse, and so on. And so any, any move in our interpretation of this passage that would restrict what's being said to the Old Testament, for example, return from the Babylonian captivity, or the like, would be a misstep because it's explicitly telling us that this is something that will unfold after the coming of Jesus Christ and during his reign. Go back once again to chapter 9. The government shall be upon his shoulder and upon his kingdom uh, to order it and establish it, and it will be henceforth even for forevermore. You'll notice also the previous verse, in verse 9, where it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So all of the indicators in terms of our reading of the text point us to, first of all, the fact that it's the coming of Jesus Christ. It's during his reign, and it's during a period in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In other words, it's going to be pervasive. The gospel will be pervasive. So all of that hems us in in terms of understanding what's happening here. And then in verse 10, it's speaking specifically about the gathering of the Gentiles. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And so it's speaking about the gospel coming with power in a way in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, coming with power to the Gentiles. We have that language at the end, and his rest, that is Christ's rest, shall be glorious. That, that language, his rest, his rest shall be glorious. It's the idea of um, an established government, right? A consolidated government 
where things are stable and where there is peace. So you think, for example, during the days of David, it was war, 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 war. Blood everywhere. War on every front. Battles and battles and battles. And men going out to battle, right? There's, there's the, the incessant war. And then you come from David to Solomon, and there we have a reign of peace. And the, past, and the Bible tells us God gave rest unto Israel. Rest from her enemies. Rest from her war. Rest from her battles. That's the picture that's being conveyed to us here, that that, that the Lord is going to do a great work in bringing the gospel with power to the Gentile nations and that there will be the establishment of his government. You go to chapter 66, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? Right? This is the language, building expectation of what the Lord is doing. And so you have all these former periods. So, we're talking about the days, the reign of Christ, and, and the description of there being former periods where it's a continued, continual struggle. And so during the time of the post-apostolic age, there's going to be this extended period of continual struggle. You see it in the first, second, third, fourth century, right, where there's all the struggle, and we see it throughout the, the centuries that follow. There's struggle, there's battle, there's war, there's difficulty spiritually for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is after these former periods of struggle that the Lord is going to bring something wonderful to the Gentiles at large so that his rest shall be glorious. He will build Zion and appear in his glory so that the knowledge of his glory is spreading like wildfire or water across the world. So here, we're, we're, we're thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ being high and lifted up. He's high and lifted up in the preaching of the gospel. He's high and lifted up in the proclamation of, of the truth. And what happens, children, when Jesus is high and lifted up, when the gospel is going forth with power and, and uh, penetrating the world, when Christ is high and lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. And this is why gospel ministers throughout the ages, if they can't do anything else and they get all sorts of other things wrong and they're inept and struggling in various ways, if they can do this one thing and that is to lift up the Son, lift up Christ, to exalt Christ, knowing it's through these means that the Lord draws men unto himself. We're speaking of the gospel that would go through the whole world when Jesus said, it's all mine and therefore it's all done in effect. I have all the power and authority. I'm not lacking anything. You go and disciple the nations with a view to bringing all that to pass. So this is, again, really when you come to Isaiah, it's not as if these things are even new in Isaiah, much less in Romans 11. You can go all the way back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. And there in Genesis, we read in the days of Noah, in verse 26, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, Canaan shall be a servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, Cain shall be a servant. Right? So already we have these little seed thoughts of the Lord's going to bless Shem, and then the Lord is going to, that Shem will actually be the people of God, the Old Testament Jews, 
that they're going to actually be enlarged through Japheth, through the Gentiles. The, the, the seed of the Gentiles are going to dwell in the tents of Shem, right? You have the engrafting in of the Gentiles. All of this stuff is depicted, or you go three chapters later, and you know the Lord's telling Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, and I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So our expectations are already here way before we get to Isaiah. The point is, you see how all of this is a, is a coherent whole. It's all woven together. It's all seamless in terms of how these things are related. So we see, first of all, the Lord's banner to the Gentiles, but then secondly, the Lord's banner to Israel. Verses 11, 12, and 13. And it shall come to pass in that day, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And it, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So in the midst of the Lord's glory and in the midst of all that he is doing and accomplishing what he would be accomplishing in the future, he remembers his ancient people and he sends his prophet to tell them, I will remember my ancient people. Notice here that it is both Israel and Judah that are referred to. So this isn't Judah's gone into the Babylonian captivity and so this is all about, you know, the return from the Babylonian captivity. It speaks of both Israel and Judah together. Not only both of them, but both of them united. Both of them brought together. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament church, the whole of, of the people of God, of the Jews of, of old time. And so this is speaking about the engrafting, the bringing back. The remnant is brought back and engrafted into the vine and connected with the fullness of the Gentiles that are, that are coming in. So the language here in verse 11, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of, of his, his people. So there's many people, this is the clue. When they say, oh, okay, okay, this is, the first time was Egypt. He recovered them. We all know it's a huge story about deliverance and redemption. And the second big event in the Old Testament is clearly recovery from the Babylonian uh, captivity, which is true. That is the other big event in this, in this vein within the Old Testament scripture. And so they sometimes move in that direction to think, well, that must be what it's referring to, this second time. But that's not at all what it's referring to. And how do we know? Because we've already established the fact that what's going to be fulfilled here takes place during the reign of the Messiah, after the Messiah has come and has established his reign, when the earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You also notice that their return is from a whole bunch of different places. It's not, it's not a picture of coming back from... from uh, Babylon, but from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and the islands of, of the seas, right? We have this picture of them scattered to the four winds, the ends of the earth. That's what's being depicted here. 
We sang about it, as I noted when we sang earlier, from Psalm 47, when it says uh, there um, in verse 2, The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. This actually comes out in a lot of different places. Another one is in Psalm 102. Psalm 102 and uh, verse 13, Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. It makes other descriptions there. And of course, the whole lot is put together in a whole bunch of different psalms. Um, One example would be Psalm 22 and verse 27. This is taking together Jew and Gentile. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's. He's the governor among uh, the nations. And so here the Lord is speaking of his banner being brought, uh, being lifted up to, to Israel, and the Lord promising that he's going to, to gather them not so much as the dispensationalists would do. The idea isn't like the, the physicality of the land of, of Israel and all of that. We, we recognize that that's not what the New Testament teaches. It teaches us that that land was a type of heaven and the heaven is the fulfillment which has come to pass in Christ and so on and so forth. It's not the emphasis on, on those sorts of things where all the Israel, you know, Jews are going to come back to the land of Palestine and so on and so forth. It's being gathered back to him being gathered back to himself. The Lord is going to gather and recover his people back to himself. You know, we, we love to sing as we, we did on Wednesday night, I think, from Psalm 126. And there's so many ways we can sing from uh, Psalm 126. Um, many things that can be brought out. But you think about Psalm 126 in the mouth of God's people at the time of the fulfillment of Romans 11, right? Think of it on that occasion. How, how will it be sung then when Zion's bondage God turned back as men that dreamed were we, right? We're just absolutely astonished. They said among the, you know, they said among the heathen, great things the Lord hath done for them. Yea, great things the Lord hath done, hath wrought for us. You know, as streams of water in the south, our bondage has been returned and so on. And how all the sowing and tears is, is brought about uh, reaping with joy and, and, and what like. Here is the Lord promising the recovery of his, his people. You'll, you'll note in, um, it goes on, he shall set up a, an ensign from the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather them together in the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of of the earth, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. And so all of that is removed, all that tension, right? The, the, the history of combat between Judah and the north and the northern and southern tribes, and then their combat with the nations at large, those things are being removed by by the Lord's hand. Look at, Psalm, or look at chapter 49, Isaiah 49 and verse 22. 
Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles and set up my standard to the people. They shall bring thy sons in their arms and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders, speaking to the Old Testament church. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed, but wait for me. These are expectations that the Lord puts in the hearts and minds of his people. The banner, uh, the Lord's banner to the Gentiles, the Lord's banner uh, to the Jews. And then thirdly, the Lord's banner to the end, verses 14 to 16. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So here the Lord is speaking of the whole, both Jew and Gentile, and the way in which the Lord is going to bring the Jew and Gentile uh, to himself. Even the the children of Ammon will be brought into subjection uh, to them. You think of the Assyrian. The Assyrians will become the Lord's own people. Wait until we get to chapter 19 where um, verse, the end of that chapter, in that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, the Egyptian into Assyria, the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance, right? You have the, all Israel being saved and the fullness of the Gentiles that are, that are being brought in. So you'll note here at the end that uh, there's a comparison drawn to the people coming out of Egypt. So this is picking up on a very familiar image. So there they were in bondage in Egypt. There's all these problems for 400 years. And the Lord brings them out. He brings the plagues and he, he, he prepares the way. He calls them out. He dries up the Red Sea and he enables them to cross over. So this, land, this is the imagery, right, of the, the tongue of the Egyptian sea being dried up and them coming to the Jordan and it being dried up and them crossing over uh, the Jordan and um, doing so dry shod. That is doing, you know, doing so on dry land in their shoes, not, with, not swimming, as it were. Uh, across these things. So he's saying, you know that imagery? That's depiction of the Lord opening the way and bringing about the blessing that he has promised. You say, well, how in the world could this ever happen? This is the thing that people always kind of bump up against. I can't picture it. I can't envision it. I can't see how you get from here right now where we are to there. What the Bible's saying, there doesn't seem to be a way to get there. How, how could it ever take place? And of course, the, the simplest answer, and the answer the children, I hope, would give, is look, 
Thus saith the Lord. End of story. Right? We're, we're to receive the word and believe the word. That's enough. Second answer would be to say, well, how do you think the Old Testament, how do you think the Old Testament Jews thought when they were anticipating what was going to come with the Messiah? You know, they're, they're thinking to themselves, how could all this be? And it was way beyond what they expected, as we heard this morning. So for us to say, okay, the Lord has promised that these things are going to come to pass and the glorious spread of the gospel and latter-day glory and so on and so forth, all we need to know is that the Lord can do it and will do it because he's promised to do it. But it'll only be done by the intervention of a sovereign Lord. That's where people miscalculate. If we're thinking in terms of the machinery of men and how the church is to, you know, position themselves and accomplish these things, then sure, you can put your head through a wall thinking about it. But when we factor in the intervention of a sovereign Lord, well, that's a game changer. Now we're at a whole different level. The Lord is going to bring it to pass. And when you begin to think along those lines, it's actually not that difficult to think of how he would put things in, in place in such a way that would bring this to pout and expedite it in, in absolutely wonderful ways. I mean, in fact, we can begin to, to, to say in concrete ways how, how that would uh, take place. And so the kingdom is the kingdom of the Messiah. And the kingdom of the Messiah is being described as victorious, as delivered, as enlarged. You know, he's, he's using the language of, um, of the borders of Israel being enlarged, right? They'll fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines. That's basically where the Gaza Strip is today, you know, or, you know, uh, toward the west. They shall spoil them on the east, land of Edom and Moab, that's on the east. Children of Ammon shall obey them. You know, it's just imagery. It's, it's saying, look, there's this expansion of borders, the expansion of of what took place during the reign of David and Solomon, where, where they were able to annex more and more and, and to consolidate what was under the Old Testament scriptures, um, the kingdom of, of, of the Lord, of, of Jehovah himself. So that's the imagery that's being used, right, of the enlargement of the kingdom, of the Lord pulling up the stakes and extending the borders of his tent, to use language, drawn from elsewhere. And just as the Old Testament fathers had seen the Red Sea dried up, which was miraculous, and the Jordan waters peeled back, which was miraculous, the Lord is saying, I will remove every single obstacle to accomplish my purpose. I will undertake by my divine power to remove every single obstacle to bring these things to pass. Destroy what needs to be destroyed as needed. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, like as it was in the day that they came up out of the, out of the land of Egypt. This is going to be a theme for Isaiah. This, this language of, of highway. Really, we saw in this regard, we saw, not quite, but a parallel a forerunner to some of this language all the way back in, uh, in chapter 2, when it was speaking in the, that opening section 
that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established above the top of the mountains. And that the people are going to say, come, you know, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us be taught of his ways, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's the picture of them streaming up the mountain. It's you picture a highway, the hordes of people that are coming and flooding into Zion to be taught of the Lord. But the language is going to go on in Isaiah where he'll speak of the highway of holiness and the pathway of the redeemed and, and um, in, in other places as we'll see when we come to them. So it's this picture of the Lord opening the way for his people, opening the way for his kingdom. In Psalm 72, we sing about the reign and kingdom of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we sing about how his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river unto the ends of the earth. We speak about how kings of Tarshish and Sheba and Seba and all the kings shall fall down before him and all the nations shall serve him. And his name will be blessed and his glory will be exalted and be advanced. Speaking of gospel glory, speaking of the salvation of sinners. We say, well, okay, why, why all this? Why, why, do we, why are we given all of this? And for the, for the first recipients of this, of this prophecy, undoubtedly it is a word of consolation. Right? There's all sorts of upheaval and wreckage and difficulty and spiritual declension and apostasies and political oppression and all sorts of other things. And the Lord is saying, lift up your heads. He's giving hope. He's giving a sense of, of expectation. He's enabling them by faith to see what they would never be able to see if they were just reading the newspaper. He enables them to see the future. It's as much true for us as it was for them. Quit, you know, get your head out of the newspaper. Probably none of you read the newspaper anymore. You know, get your eyes off of the computer screen and just being sucked down the vortex of all the details of what's happening and unfolding in world events. They're relevant. We should know something of what's going on and we should be growing in our discernment of understanding and interpreting, you know, what the Lord is doing in reference to his church and kingdom and so on and so forth. But for most, it's being sucked down the vortex and losing the plot lines entirely and coming up with all sorts of harebrained nonsense. And so the Lord gives us a call back to his word and he's saying, look, here's what you need to know, among other things. The prospects and forecast may be very pessimistic short term, as I like to say, but they are optimistic long term and that the Lord has a plan. Why else is this important? Because it is absolutely wrapped up and tied to the glory of the king. Why is it important? Because of our interest in the glory of the king. That's what brings this from just sort of, okay, speculation or, or thinking about, you know, eschatology and concepts and brings it right down into the warp and woof of the bosom of the Lord's people. The average Christian. The average Christian is excited about the king. 
The average Christian loves the king, wants to su subject themselves to the king, and wants glory for the king, and the glory that is brought to the king is brought through the advance of his kingdom. And so we're in dead earnest about the advance of the kingdom because of our deep-rooted interest in the glory of the king himself. And what Jesus did in the Great Commission is he hung all his glory. He hung everything on his own glory. All power and authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. What comes as a result of the commission he gives is on him. He's the one with all the power. He's the one with all the authority. And it's for that reason that we lodge everything else we learn from the scripture. We lodge our expectation and confidence that with that apparent authority, that commission will actually be carried out and rendered successful and bringing the discipling of, of the nations. It's for the glory of the king. And so we take interest and we sit up and pay attention Though we may not have a share in these things, though we may not see these things ourselves, likely, though, though these things may not be directly related to us in that sense, in terms of the, the benefits that would accrue to us, that doesn't matter. Because it's not about us. It's about him. And it doesn't matter because our interest is ultimately not in our own comfort or anything else, but in the standing of his cause. And knowing what is to come of his cause is enough. The last reason it's important is because our knowledge of the future affects our view of today. So our knowledge of the future, our confidence of the future, the revelation of the future is in part what informs our actions for today. It's part of the reason that we catechize children and have them memorize scripture and, and have them memorize the metrical psalms. And it's the reason that we go out and preach on the street. It's the reason we take, we take such a keen interest in uh, the enterprise of foreign missions. It's the reason that we are so dead earnest about planting other churches. It's the reason that you, outside of your comfort zone, speak a word for the Savior across the back fence to your neighbor, right? It's what we do today is built upon our expectations of what is to come in the future, that the Lord's going to take all this sowing, 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 sowing. And yes, there's, there's fruit that's being born from it simultaneously, but it's also huge sowing that will ultimately result in huge harvest. And those who sowed and those who reaped shall rejoice together so that they have an equal share in the joy and glory that the Lord brings to pass. So for that reason, it's important for us, for the Lord to reveal these things to us and for us to lay them up in our hearts as well. At the center of this text is Jesus Christ himself, the one that is the root of, of Jesse. It is Christ as the Savior. It is Christ as the banner who's lifted up. It is Christ as the King who is exalted. And if the church of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ 
would busy themselves in exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, then it would be all the better for both Zion and the world at large. And so it is our desire that he would be lifted up as a banner to the Gentiles of our own day and to his own ancient people in the days to come. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, the great God and the mighty, we pray, glorify thine own name and exalt thine own glory and preserve thy own cause and advance thy own kingdom. This, O Lord, is the sum of all of our desires. We pray, do it for thine own namesake. And bless us as a people that we would look for these things and pray for these things and wait for these things and sow in anticipation of a harvest. <clears throat> 